A landmark deal, some reaffirmations and a failed agreement. Another United Nations annual climate meeting has come and gone. We'll take an in-depth look at the highs and lows of COP27 and how that affects South Africa. This is no ordinary Wednesday. It's an in-depth look at the events and trends moving markets, shaping the economy and changing the game. I'm Jeremy Maggs and a very warm welcome to you. At this year's climate talks, world leaders have reached a historic agreement that will see a loss and damage fund set up to assist vulnerable nations worst affected by climate disasters. But the line in the sand was not drawn on phasing out fossil fuels. To get more on this all-important global story, I'm joined by Investec Global Head of Sustainability, Tanya Dos Santos Ford, along with Melanie Janssen van Furen, Group Sustainability Lead. To both of you. A very warm welcome to No Ordinary Wednesday. So, Melanie, let's begin with your overall assessment of this year's climate talks. What do you discern? Hi, Jeremy. First of all, it was amazing to be present at the COP27 conference. It was the first for me and absolutely overwhelming. But I can say for myself, there was four overarching themes that for me stood out. The first one was Africa and the energy transition. Very, very strong voices coming from the African continent. As you know, Africa being the lowest carbon emitter, but they are experiencing the largest climate change consequences. And how do we move things in the right direction? direction. So the question was, who needs to pay for this damage? And in addition to that, the adaptation finance that needs to go with that by limiting, because we are already exceeding our 1.5 temperature increase. The second one was biodiversity, very strong views on recognizing our actions of what we have done as humans to biodiversity. We need to take accountability for that, for the natural resources that we have used, and we need to start repairing what we have destroyed. We cannot continue to consume as we consume. The third one is human rights, strong focus on human rights and in specific the human rights for indigenous communities and to give them a voice, not only bring them to the table, but they want participation. And then I think the fourth one, very interestingly, but not so surprisingly, is the youth had a strong presence again this year at COP27, also being asked not to be observers, but being part of the climate negotiations. Ultimately, I guess it is going to be the youth, younger people that have been tasked with uh, solving all of these difficulties. Uh, Tanya, let me bring you into the conversation. What about your assessment then? And were there significant shifts in tone and thinking in Egypt? Hi, Jeremy. The last time I attended COP was in Durban in 2011. And literally at that time, no one even knew what COP stood for. I remember telling my parents I'm going to COP and they, they were absolutely clueless. So there's been a massive shift in general public awareness and knowledge around what COP means. You can really tell that from the moment you arrive. One of the criticisms of this COP came around the lack of representation from some of the senior leaders from a country perspective, but also from the lack of C-suite exec from the private sector. Uh, Apparently, there was some criticism around none of the banking CEOs being present. The reason this is important is because COP is a vital way to hold leaders accountable. And this is where we are seeing countries raise their ambitions because of these talks. We've had the US with the Inflation Reduction Act and Australia with their new climate change plan. And even the announcement of South Africa's Just Energy Transition Plan, if we didn't have a COP that you were working towards, that would have probably taken even longer. So you're definitely seeing a much greater awareness and urgency around each COP. 
it also reminds us that climate policy is very closely linked to politics. And depending on who is in power, that policy can literally change overnight. One of the fun things we saw along the way was um, these little badges. One of the things you do is collect lots of badges. And one of the badges had WTF written on it, which stood for Where's the Finance? So there was lots of frustration around the financial system as a whole with a strong push for real swift transformation of the financial system and its structures and processes. And then I think also from a corporate perspective, the UK released their transition plan task force framework. And this is really the first time that it's now setting out a plan that financial institutions and listed companies are going to have to submit their net zero plans to the FCA by the end of 2023. So that's a year's time. So I think that was another key area, you know, that came out of COP. All right, that's a great uh, broad overview. Tanya, talking about uh, WTF then, uh, a lot of talk about this loss and damage fund. How's it going to work? I mean, the reality is that climate change will cause damage that we aren't able to recover from. And that's what loss and damage is. It talks about the impacts of climate change that you can't recover from, like a whole town being washed away in a tsunami, or if you think of South Africa, you know, a whole settlement or community being washed away in a flood. So if the world had done more to mitigate and adapt to climate change a decade ago or two decades ago, we would definitely have a much more limited scale of these losses. So we're at the point now where we have to contend with the fact that there will be some permanent losses and we need to take responsibility. Who is going to help these communities and economies? Because in general, they happen in the least developed economies. So there are generally three things that need to be done. And the first is around developed countries and developing countries honoring their mitigation commitments to reduce emissions. And hence, that reduces the risks of more climate damage. The second is around helping vulnerable countries to adapt. How are they going to build their resilience? And the last is around this global response to help countries. And if you think of what's happened in Pakistan, that global response has never been more important than it is right now. So I think that this new loss and damage fund was established. So that was a first. And you also had new pledges to the adaptation fund, which totaled more than 230 million US dollars. So I think this is the start from a loss and damage perspective, and we're going to see a lot more coming through. Melanie, let me quote the chairman of the African Group of Negotiators, Ephraim Shitima, uh, speaking at COP27. He said this fund, and I quote, is a victory not only for Africa, but for developing nations. So is it a victory in your opinion? And most importantly, I guess, what does it mean for South Africa? I'm going to take a step back first to just put things into context. Africa as a continent has always been perceived as we're not having the resources, we don't have the skills, we don't have the technology. However, asking whether this climate loss and damage fund is a victory, it will depend on two polar opposite viewpoints. On the one side, do you see us as a victim of climate change, which is true, by the way, but that's only part of the story. We have contributed very little to carbon emissions and that is causing this climate change, but we bear the brunt of these climate consequences, which leads us to this loss and damage fund that Tanya touched on. But on the other side, not being a victim of climate change, can we be the driver of climate action? We have an abundance of resources. We have a young labor force. We have an abundance of renewables, land and minerals. So for me, it feels very optimistic to expect the developed countries to foot the entire bill. Although there were multiple pledges and promises, we still need to see this come through. And 
just in reality by planning your future on the view that the global north will find the goodness in their hearts to write a check for us to cover all the loss and damage, although we do have the moral right to receive this, it may lead to disappointment. And it puts the power back into where the money came from, um, the global north. So are you waiting on them to make the change or are you going to act now? So is this a victory? Yes, it is a victory, but don't see that in isolation. We can make a change and can be the driver of climate action as well. And specifically for South Africa? So specifically for um, South Africa, we do have this abundance of renewable resources. We've got land. We've got a young labor force. Yes, they need to be trained and reskilled, but there's immense opportunities. And I think if we start changing our mindset and start not playing the victim, but playing the part that we have as a country to say we can make a change and we can provide this abundance of renewable energy to the rest of the continent is huge. We are going to continue this conversation in just a moment. I just want to remind you that a new episode of No Ordinary Wednesday drops every fortnight. Don't miss it. Subscribe to Investec Focus Radio SA wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the channel, please take a moment to rate us. So back to COP27, not all good news. No agreement, for instance, on phasing out of all fossil fuels and not just coal. Tanya, in that respect then, as I bring you back into the conversation, what were the stumbling blocks? Jeremy, I think there were a couple of stumbling blocks. The first one or the first contentious issue that is still not fully resolved is really around this expectation from the developed countries that the developing countries should grow their economies in a carbon-free way. When none of the high-income countries achieve their development status under you know, any carbon constraint. So there's some dissension around which countries should be included. Some people are of the view that China and India, even though they are developing countries, they're also big emitters. So they should also be contributing for their impact and their contribution to emissions. But India and China, in response, say, no, we'll give you technical support. But the rich nations, they must pay the cash and take the greater responsibility. Another stumbling block is around, you know, as you say, this phasing out of all fossil fuels versus not just coal. So in Glasgow at Mm. COP26, a last minute consensus was reached on supporting a phase down of unabated coal power. It should have been phase out, but once again, it was China and India that demanded it be reduced to phase down. The debate continued this year, and I think that was largely off the back of that intergovernmental panel on climate change, making it very clear that the world must halve emissions by 20 if we're going to keep the 1.5 degree scenario alive. And the only way to do that is to eliminate all fossil fuels. So you had India arguing for the phase down of all fossil fuels because they see it as unfair that the developed countries are continuing to use oil and gas. And obviously, this is a difficult one because of the current global energy crisis. And a lot of the developed world have had to rely more heavily on oil and gas or even go back into coal. So for me, I definitely got the sense that the stance on gas as an interim transition fuel has definitely softened. But I think the pressure will be back on at COP28. Melanie, we know there have been warnings that the world over is not reaching targets to slow down global warming, carbon and methane emissions reaching record highs in 2021. Those warnings, of course, are getting a lot more strident, a lot more urgent, aren't they? 
Absolutely. And I was looking today, we are sitting at 417 parts per million carbon in the air. So what does it mean? Um, in simple terms, it's a hell of a lot of carbon and we need to be scared and start acting now. So I'm first going to just touch on the target, saying that we have seen so many net zero pledges, not only from countries, but from corporates as well. But it's imperative for these targets towards net zero to be ambitious, but also achievable and not just wish that you can achieve these targets someday in the future when it's not maybe your problem anymore. And by the way, that is called um, a new term called green wishing. So what is suggested is that you put these targets into shorter intervals. You put the targets into three to five year intervals towards the ultimate 2050 goal so that you can see and you have proper disclosure on where you are now in the short term and where you want to go into the longer term. And I think that's something that has been missing, why we are not reaching these targets. So what do we need to do to rectify this as a world. We need to change. People need to change how we consume goods. We need to change how we produce goods. And we need to implement very large scale carbon removal, which is basically taking the carbon and locking it up in trees or in the ground or in the ocean and produce it with the lowest possible emissions. And for South Africa, what do we need to do? Again, as I mentioned, the perception is there's always no money. We don't have infrastructure. We don't have technology. Um, and how can we drive climate action. We have the money. It just needs to flow to the right places. We have an abundance of young people for a potential strong labor force, abundance of renewables and lots of minerals. So that makes South Africa a very competitive place. And I feel very optimistic, even though we are sitting in a space where we are experiencing enormous global warming um, with enormous weather um, consequences, we still have time to act. Tanya, fundamentally, though, this entire conversation is about the money, as you said earlier, WTF. So uh, let's bring the conversation closer to home in South Africa. Our president discussing funding to assist the country to transition from coal to renewables. What do we know of those key details of the funding plans? So, Jeremy, a few months ago, we hosted an event at Investex offices and we had Daniel Manelli on the line. And I was incredibly frustrated with the lack of progress around where that package of funding was going. And I remember questioning Daniel and saying, why is it taking so long? Well, I can now publicly apologize um, to Daniel. I now have a much better understanding of just how intricate these agreements are. I attended a number of sessions where Andre Duret was unpacking what the package will do and what it means for South Africa. And it really is very complex agreements. And it started with SHJP, you know, being endorsed by the International Partners Group. But at the same time, what I think is really, really well done of South Africa is that we didn't develop a plan according to the 8.5 billion pledge last year. We developed a plan with a much broader view of what will it take to truly transition. And that's the 1.5 trillion over five years. That is what we're saying we will need in order to truly transition and not just energy transition, just energy transition. So Ramaphosa and Dorator have, you know, certainly made it clear that the funding needs to be well packaged. It needs to include meaningful grants, meaningful concessional loans and investments by lots of different financial players. But at the end of the day, the financing will go to three priority areas. And this is based on 
you know, which, which areas are the highest emitting areas. So first and foremost, the electricity sector, which is responsible for 45% of the country's emissions. So that was an important place to start. And that will receive the majority of the funding, which is at 70%. And I think that's just over a trillion rand. And that will go to decommissioning the coal-fired power stations, but at the same time, expanding and reinforcing the resilience of the transmissions grid. There was a saying at the conference, transition won't happen without transmission. So we need to bring online new renewables at pace, but at the same time, we need the grid to be available when those renewables come online. The second area is around the development of the green hydrogen sector, and that will receive 22% of funding. And that's important because it will provide fuels for those sectors that are hard to decarbonize like aviation. And there were a number of further actions around how we're going to upskill this green hydrogen sector. And then the remaining funding will go to developing capacity for new energy vehicles or electric vehicles in South Africa. Now, once again, this is an area where a lot of people think, what's the point? Why do we need electric vehicles in South Africa if we're going to be plugging them into you know, fossil fuel powered electricity? Well, that's the point. So that is why the first priority is the sector. And then we followed up with electric vehicles. And the big opportunity here is around the export, where it can create multiple jobs. That's a key outline of the funds. But since that plan, further funding has been announced over the last two weeks. And, you know, this, this came from the World Bank in terms of a specific 9 billion rand loan to repurpose Kamati coal-fired power station. And it was really interesting listening to Andre Dureta talk about the level of detail they've gone to in understanding what it will take. He made a statement, which I'm going to repeat. He said, not one Eskom employee will lose their job as a result of closing down the fire-powered station. Not one employee, but the informal sector will be impacted. And hence why a lot of the funding that is coming through from some of the other countries like the UK and France and Germany is going to go to the elements of ensuring the just transition part, helping affected communities, helping to upskill, helping to build climate finance maps and tracking tools. You know, for me overall, very encouraged by what the JetP plan has to say and very encouraged by what we're hearing Ramaphosa say. My only concern is that we do need more comfort that his whole cabinet is on board with the strategy. So, Melanie, we've got the president then announcing the terms of two climate loans, but we're still far off from what we need for true transition. The question is, are the loans enough? And we, we're looking at 600 million euros and then some developed nations pledging something in the region of $8.5 billion. Is that enough? A very interesting question and a question that we get quite a lot. It's absolutely not enough. I think we all realize this and know this. And this is where corporates and the capital markets will need to play a critical role in mobilizing the scale of capital that is needed to reach this net zero. And we should not forget the importance of financing for adaptation. Again, I'm stressing this because we have already reached that global temperature increases, which has been locked in and we are facing the consequences of climate change. In addition, we saw multiple new financing commitments from governments and intergovernmental bodies. We did not see a wave of commitments which will address the whole financing gap. But the positive is is that we have seen a lot of project financing towards renewables from various financial institutions. Which So there are a lot of opportunities within the private sector, but we need to collaborate and be seen as an enabler to fulfill our net zero commitments. Um, we need to see stronger policies, but not just stronger policies. We 
need to see deliberate policy implementation. So that just brings me back to the fact that, yes, it's not enough. It's definitely not enough, but we need to collaborate within the sector and between sectors to make this happen. I want to start wrapping up this edition of No Ordinary Wednesday. And it's a question to both of you. And Melanie, let's continue with you. Great insight from COP27, COP28 next year. What do we need to be looking out for? I think I would expect definitely stronger commitments towards adaptation finance. The pressure was already strong in COP27. I feel there's going to be a stronger ask for that in COP28. Very strong voices is coming from the youth. We can expect that even more stronger than we've seen this year. I hope to see more action and less talks, which in a sense, we did see a bit more action this year, but I would like to see more action. And I would also expect more transparent and deliberate progress on the net zero commitments made. Tanya, I'll give the final word to you. Yeah, Jeremy, I think for COP28, we are going to see a strong push for developed nations to up their game and to honour their commitments. In fact, it's going to be for all nations to up their game when it comes to their NDCs, but in particular, developed nations in terms of providing finance and helping with mitigation and adaptation. We spoke about loss and damage. I think this was only the start. I think that will gain a lot more momentum at the next COP. Mel briefly mentioned uh, green wishing. I think climate credibility and pressure to avoid corporate greenwashing and to maintain high standards is going to be ever more present in the next 12 months before the next COP. And I think we might see some unveiling of some of these standards at the next COP. We haven't spoken much about biodiversity and natural capital, which is seen as critical in protecting the Paris Agreement. So I think we're definitely going to see a lot more around, you know, how can we urgently protect and restore nature? And I think lastly, just to wrap it up, it is going to be held in the UAE. So I think oil is going to be one of the biggest areas of contention. Tanya Dos Santos Ford along with Melanie Janssen van Furen. Thank you both for joining me on this COP27 edition of No Ordinary Wednesday. Please join us again on the 7th of December for our next episode as we continue to explore money trends shaping your world. If you haven't yet added us to your podcast feed, search for Investec Focus Radio SA wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. Until next time, goodbye from me, Jeremy Maggs, and the entire Focus Radio team. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendations. Investec Limited and subsidiaries, authorized financial service providers, registered credit providers, and long-term insurer.